Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for all that you do for us, for the way that you provide for us and take care of us, and continually do that for us, regardless of whether we respond to you with love and obedience and trust. May we see you more tonight and trust you as a result of what your word's going to reveal through the words you used to write the New Testament. So take a look at the noose. May you bring to light those things that we need to understand about how we are operating as we focus on what your word can do in our life to transform us from the way that this world system thinks. In Jesus' name, amen. Our study has taken us into a study on the mind, and last week we dealt with a few things. We're going to bring those back out, but I want to remind you that we started from Romans 12, 2, and we got to this parable in Matthew 15 as a result of that study. So in Romans 12:2, the command that we have is to stop being conformed to this world. And the word conformed means, again, to be molded by external pressure on the outside physical appearance. So it's changing what you look like to match the world. And why is it changing what you look like? Well, because this is talking to believers. Believers are not only body and soul. They are body, soul, and human spirits. So they're spiritual beings. They're children of God. They should look like children of God. So if you are a child of God inside, the reason we don't look like a child of God outside is because we have been conformed to this world. So the word conformed is suska matizis they, and it means to mold by external pressure. So we're commanded in Romans 12 to, to stop being molded by external pressure to this world, but to be transformed. The word there is metamorphous they, and it means to be changed from the inside to the outside. So one is putting pressure on the outside to make a difference in the way you look. The other one is changing inside to make a difference in how you look on the outside or act on the outside. But be transformed in the re by the renewing of your mind. So the process of transformation, that's what we're going to start looking at, is the renovation of your mind, the renewing of your mind, occurs when you take out what you've learned in the world system and replace it with what God teaches about truth. So Satan and company are attempting to create a kingdom. Satan is trying to overthrow God's kingdom. And so he's taking out absolute truth and replacing it with his version of truth, his policies, his procedures. And so through this world, he, him being the ruling power of this world, he is trying to tear down God's policies of his kingdom to s put in and support his kingdom and his policies. That's why if we ever side with the world in today's age, with our thought process, we can know immediately that we are not siding with God. Because God is not the present ruler of this age, or of this uh, world system, excuse me. He is the ruler of this age because he is sovereign. But right now, Lucifer, Satan, and company are running this world. So the renovation process I mentioned is the renewing of your mind. The Greek word anakinosin for renewing means to take out the old things and put in new things. This world teaches us things. We learn things every day that we're in it. We learn things from birth on. Those things that are contrary to God's word, they're contrary to absolute truth and reality, have to be taken out and replaced by God's thought process and absolute truth. That's an exchange, one for one. If the world says that love is self-gratification, and God says love is selflessness towards another individual entirely, you've got to remove the old belief about self-gratification being what love is and define it now the way God does it. That's the exchange. It takes out the old and replaces it with what's new. Now, the reason that we renovate our mind is so that we can prove what the will of God is. I want to remind you, though, the transformation process is, in the Greek tense, passive, meaning that something else does the transform transforming work in you. It's the Holy Spirit who uses God's word 
to take out the old things and put in the new things. That's why we've got to be in fellowship. That's our spiritual service of worship is operating in fellowship with God. The purpose is so that we can understand the will of God. We identified that version of God's will as the directive will of God, what God is saying moment by moment to you to do so that you know where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do. That renovation of our mind, the word mind there is noose, and it means active thought process, refers to a number of different components to your mind that function to create thought. And so we're going to take a look at those things a little bit tonight as well. Again, our parable is Matthew 15, 1 through 20. And I'm just going to skip through to where Peter explain, is asking Jesus to explain to him in verse 15. So Jesus tells a parable, and Peter says, explain the parable to us. Jesus answers to him and says, do you, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man? The Pharisees and scribes were asking why Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands, which was in accordance with the oral law of God. The oral law of God was not what God gave to Moses. It was what as the law of God, the Mosaic law, was written and under, or was recorded and read and taught, men took what they heard and understood and said, okay, based on these things, we're going to say that this also is a law. And so it became oral tradition. It became a law that was not given directly to Moses in the Mosaic law, but was based upon what Moses was given. We're going to add these things to further define what God meant by that. And so it's kind of like with America these days. We have a constitution and a bill of rights. In the constitution, our founding fathers set up a framework for this nation that said this is how it runs. And anything not defined in here is given to the states to define and they did that so that if you didn't like what Washington State made it a law, you could move to Montana if they didn't have that law, but still be a U.S. citizen. And so they set up a constitution. They said these are the powers expressed within that go the government can handle and utilize. Well, what has happened since then? Well, as people have looked at that constitution and politicians have looked at it, they've said, okay, we need this law and this law and this law. And this, this supports this part of the constitution. Or, well, that law doesn't support it. So they've added on to it. It's a similar idea. The Mosaic Law is, in essence, the Constitution of the United States of America in the parallel. And all the different laws and decrees passed by Congress is what the oral law was in the parallel. So we've got what the elders, the traditions, the elders established based upon the Mosaic Law, which said, do not eat without washing your hands because that will defile you. But here you're just saying, no, according to the Mosaic Law, that's not what will defile you. So the Mosaic Law was different than the oral law. And anytime you see Jesus being talked to by a scribe or Pharisee, they're almost always using the oral law. The law says this, and Jesus answers some other version of the law. And that's why sometimes, or a lot of times, he gets to shut them down through that. Other times, he's just brilliant in what he does. So he says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Verse 18. And then he gives us a list of things in 19 and 20 that come from the heart. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So what is he talking about? He's talking about our heart. Why are we talking about our heart when we're talking about changing our thought process? Well, that's because when we look at our heart, 
we have to look at the mind because the heart exists in the right frontal lobe. Let's take a look at this diagram. This is a brain. It is a frontal view. I mean, you're looking at the forehead. And I've labeled it right and left on the bottom, which does not match your frame of reference, the way you're looking at it. But if you put your right hand up to the right side of your head, it matches that. All right? So imagine that you are, your head is on the board and you're facing out towards the back of the room, towards the west, and your right and left is up there. Here's what we find in the left frontal lobe. This is the mind, the noose. This is what needs to be changed, renovated. In your mind, you have perception. This is the ability you have to recognize data and change it into information. You are getting all sorts of data from your senses right now. Even the eyes seeing the paint colors and receiving the different frequencies of light waves and particles coming back at the sensors are transferring and translating that blue dark color into a color that you can look at in your senses and go, I perceive that is a, a color. I know what color that is because I've seen it before. It's called blue. Or if you want to be more specific, dark blue. And if you want to get more specific than that, if you can, navy blue or deep navy blue or something like that. You get the drift. You also look at the other side of the room and you see an orange color, maybe a red-orange. Now if your sense of eyesight doesn't work the way our human eyes normally work, you'll see those colors in different ways. Either color blindness or that sort of thing changes that. So what we're getting at, though, is that your perception is based upon your senses. You perceive things through your senses, and not just your eyes. Humanity operates primarily sight-based. I don't mean only with their eyes, but what we can interact with, what we can feel and see, we're sensory-based in that. And sight is one of those number one senses for us. We get so much information from sight, so much so that it becomes so dominant that we don't really get as much information as we can from our ears or even our nose. We can develop the other senses by ignoring sight and focusing on the other ones to a greater capacity. And that's why when a person is uh, blind, they can actually feel things and feel frequencies before, so, uh, sound, noises, before someone who is able to see can. My grandfather was a track athlete, and one of the things that amazed him was he would go against some blind runners and he would always claim that they would jump the gun, the starting gun. But what finally he realized and someone helped him realize was that it's not that they're jumping the gun. It's that he hears the noise and processes it, sl process it slower than they do. Because they can feel the pressure and hear it versus he's just hearing it. And so it was a, a different sense that they developed. The way we are able to perceive things is through our senses. If we lose one sense, the other four have to compensate if we focus only through one sense, like sight, then the other four aren't going to be as strong for us. So if you want to be really one of those geek kind of fellows or girls, you can walk around all day with your hand over your eyes and try to develop your hearing or your smell. I don't recommend it, but it's something you can do. It would increase your perception, your ability to recognize different bits of information. Now perception, once you perceive and recognize that data is coming in and are able to say, okay, that's, that's a color that's blue, that's a color that's orange, that's a color that's white, then you move to comprehension. 
And comprehension is the ability to understand information. So data is the raw signal that's coming to your brain. It turns into something, it turns into information when you recognize what it is. And basically your brain says, okay, I've seen this before, it is this, and you go, yes, that's what it is. And it puts it together and says, the color blue, that's what is on the wall. So because you've seen it before, you have a database, a catalog you can go back into. Now vocabulary is probably a good example of that. You can hear a word, but if you've never heard it before, you won't comprehend it. And you'll need to ask someone or go look it up. And when you go look it up, you get more information, and then it defines the word. You say, oh, okay, I think I understand that now. And it moves to comprehension, where you have the ability to understand uh, information. Through perception and comprehension, you then get to move to evaluation. The mind evaluates things constantly. Everything I'm saying, you are evaluating. Or perhaps you've evaluated that what I'm about to say or what I am saying is useless, and so you've ignored me. I don't know. It's very possible. Evaluation basically identifies that you are able to give value to the information you're receiving. You're assigning it value and worth in your life and in your mind. You give value to everything you receive. You may hate the color blue and walk in the room and just try to forget that it's there because you've given it no value or low value. You may love the color orange and because the orange is there, you want to sit across from it so you can see it more and enjoy it more. You've given it more value. Everything we do is based on value, whether we find benefit or worth or value. Those things are all tied together. So you perceive, comprehend, and then evaluate. The things that you say are valuable, then you use in your life. The things you, don't, you say are not valuable are stored later for various types of recall later. You make a determination, though, after you understand value. After you give an assigned value, you determine how you're going to utilize that information. Now, this is where it gets kind of weird because some pieces of information, like the color blue, you don't really go like, okay, I'm going to use the color blue in my life to signify peace. I mean, you could, but you don't use that kind of information that way. Versus if I were to give you like the Pythagorean theorem and then say solve for X or solve for the hypotenuse and you had the Pythagorean theorem, then you could actually utilize and say, okay, I got the answer. I did something with it. So the things that you can do, you know, there's a piece of information you can do things with, and there's other pieces of information just that, that further continue to define what you're inter interacting and experiencing. I was going to say interspeciencing. It's a word you've never heard before, most likely. Perhaps we should introduce that word into English, but I try not to introduce too many at once. I forget all the words I'm trying to introduce. So determination is what you do once you've evaluated the information. You say, I'm going to use this information in this way or not use it at all. If you say, I'm not going to use it all, it gets stored in a brain cell. You never, ever lose what's come into your brain. But you do keep it from being remembered by not creating a wheel track. It's a whole process of neurology we'll get to a different day. So you've got perception, comprehension, evaluation, and determination. This is your mind, your active thought process. It perceives what the senses are feeding it. You comprehend it if you've got enough data or enough information about it. And if you don't comprehend it, what should you do? Get more information. We are finding more and more 
and seeing more and more in society that if someone doesn't know something, they just sit there and, and are content not to know it. What's wrong with knowing something? What's wrong with doing the work to figure something out? Don't be afraid ever to look up more information about something. Or if you don't understand it, don't be embarrassed and say, I don't understand this. Don't be afraid to ask a question because you'll feel stupid if you ask it. You're not stupid if you ask questions. You're smart because you're trying to learn more. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you don't know something, the only way to find out is to ask or inquire. That's it. So this is your mind. This is how it works. Now it coincides and cooperates with your heart, which is on the right frontal lobe. So you have the left frontal lobe, which is your operating thought process. It, it's determining what to do with the information you're receiving and understanding. And then when you make a determination, you store it in your heart. Your heart consists of your conscience. This is what I call the witness of, of action. So it witnesses your action. And it testifies as to whether that action matched your list of morals, of what's right or wrong. Now, the difference basically between morals and ethics is morals refer to that which you define and believe is right or wrong. It's personal. Ethics defines what in actuality or reality is right or wrong. So if you want to know ethics, you've got to know who God is. Because ethics is right in line with God's character. If God says lying is wrong, that's an ethic. You can believe that 100%. But you, on the other hand, might go, no, lying is right. Lying protects me when I don't want to get into trouble. Lying protects my image when I don't want people to see me a certain way. And you may believe or think that lying is right. And so your morals are what you say are right or wrong. And your conscience works off your set of morals. Now, we want ultimately our morals to match ethics. Morals and ethics should be the same thing for us personally as believers. What that means is that we've allowed God to define what's right and wrong in our life. We do that, golden. Righteous, even. The conscience is the witness. It observes your actions and it compares your actions and your thoughts to your list of morals. And it says, okay, that was immoral. And if it sees something that's immoral... It goes, ding, we got a problem here. And it'll send out emotional responses. It'll send out adrenal responses. And it is designed to be a check in your life. This is why people who aren't even believers in Christ or Christians or religious at all, this is why atheists, for crying out loud, believe in good and bad. It makes no sense to believe that there is no ultimate objective reality that includes God. And also to say, we should be good people. It further makes no sense if you espouse the theory of evolution or believe the theory of evolution to say that we should be nice to other people. Isn't it survival of the fittest? Doesn't that further the evolution thought process? We want the strongest to survive and the weak to die in evolution if it were true, which it's not. So the conscience is purely human. It matches and watches your actions and thoughts and matches them to the list of right and wrong that you believe. If you do something that's wrong and someone's like, dang, that was wrong. You're like, and you, you have no problem with it? No, it wasn't. Well, you know what we can use on this example here? You're all going to hate me. Cheating on homework. High school, 
every day, almost every class, the majority of almost every student, right? It was that way when I was in high school for the most part, and I'm certain it's only gotten worse. You get to class, you're about five minutes early, teacher's in the room, hey, does anyone have the answers to number five or six or seven or just give me your whole paper, I need to run down, right? And how many people actually say, no, you can't use my paper. It's wrong to cheat. It's probably pretty rare. The general consensus is that it's right. Yeah? Or that if it's wrong, it doesn't matter if it's wrong. Which means it's okay that I don't do what's right. Which is a immoral belief in and of itself. So the conscience is our witness to our actions and thoughts. It matches our actions and thoughts to the standards, the morals that we agree with are right or wrong. It's programmable. You can change whatever you agree with as right or wrong. One day you can think murder is A-OK, and the next day you think it's a terrible, horrible thing. It's programmable. Let's move on. Norms and standards. These are your morals and protocols. So now this is basically the, the list of things that you say are right or wrong, the morals themselves, and then the protocols, the things that you use in a given situation. You get to class, you don't have your homework. You've been told by your youth pastor Tuesday night, as you get to class tomorrow, that cheating on your homework is wrong, and you said, okay, I agree with that. So when you get to class, you go, I can't cheat on my homework, I didn't do my homework, but I can't cheat on it because it's wrong. So now what do you do? You've got to implement some sort of protocol to get you through that situation. And you could, with five minutes to spare, furiously write down every answer you can. Just write down any answers in an attempt to deceive the teacher into thinking you've done it. That would violate a standard, by the way, called lying and dishonesty, deception. You can implement a number of different protocols. These protocols are the things you use to get you through a situation. Morals are what's right or wrong. Protocols are what you do in a given situation. Okay? Every choice you make is a protocol. You choose what you're going to do in a given situation. Situation pops up, you choose, this is how I'm going to handle it, and you do that. Now this is where we start talking about neurology, the study of the brain. Fantastic. It's amazing. God has designed our brains to learn and function off the path of least resistance. You guys have learned about electricity, correct? What does electricity do? Travels along the path of least resistance. Now, when you look at neuro neurology and neuroanatomy, you find out that the brain uses electrical chemical impulses to send data across a little tiny canyon called a synapse, or the synaptic cleft. And basically, you've got an arm on one side of a brain cell, reaching out to an arm on another side of a brain cell, and they shoot stuff to each other. We're going to draw a neuron. Sounds like we're making fun of somebody already. And you guys are thinking, you're a neuron. No. <laughs> so this is a neuron. A neuron is simply a brain cell. That's all it is. Okay, It's a cell, just like you have cells in your body. So this is a neuron, it's a brain cell. And the brain cell has axons. No, I'm not drawing a sun. 
Axons send information from neuron to neuron. Beautiful. And brain cells have dendrites. Dendrites receive information from other brain cells. Fantastic. So we have one brain cell. What do we need? We need another one. Be a bummer if you were born with one brain cell. You wouldn't be able to function. I'm not trying to mock or make fun of anyone there. The next neuron has the same components, and I'll just draw out a few of them to create the idea. What color are the axons? Blue. That's not in real life. That's just how we've done it. So the axons are the ones, the ones that send information. The dendrites are the ones that receive information. Now, how do they send and receive information? There's a little gap, and you probably can't see it very well, but there's a little gap right here between the dendrites and the axons. So they're not actually touching. There's a little gap. It's like a little canyon. And when a brain cell is triggered, it sends an electrical impulse down the axon. At the end, it terminates into an axon terminate or terminal, and then it shoots across a chemical, so it transfers the electrical signal into a chemical, shoots it across the synaptic cleft, the little canyon. The dendrite then receives the chemical, transfers it into an electrical signal, and it goes and moves all the way throughout your brain. This happens less than instantly almost. I mean, in a chronon, a small, minuscule time frame that's probably not even measurable. We have over a trillion brain cells in our brain and they're functioning and firing, sending information through these synapses. Your protocols, the more you'd make the same choice, they increase the size of the dendrite receptor and the axon terminal. So that instead of it being like just the width of one finger, it starts to open up and now it's bigger and broader. Why? Because your body's getting ready to send that information again and again and again. The more you make the same choice over and over again, the bigger the, the terminal and the receptacle for the information gets. And the bigger they get, the faster the information flows through. It makes literally a broader path in your brain for data to pass through. It's a path of least resistance. Now, if you haven't made a choice before, or let's say you've made 20 choices one way, and now you choose to do a different choice, so you've not stolen something 20 times, but now you've made one choice to steal something, now you've got a new path your brain can take. And if you do that 20 times, now the wheel track, the pathway, is equal to each other. Now it's up for grabs. Next opportunity you have, you may steal, you may not. The path of least resistance is the one your body naturally wants to take. Your protocols function that way. So they develop wheel tracks the Hebrew, or the, the Greek word is trachea. I forget the Hebrew word at the moment. The Greek word is trachea. And you read in scripture and you see things such as lead me in the path of righteousness in the Hebrew, or in the Old Testament. Lead me in the way, the wheel track of righteousness. He's saying basically, 
get me into fellowship with you, lead me, cause me to make the right choices, make me obedient to make the right choices, remove those wicked things from me so that I choose the right things, and you create a wheel track in my brain that makes me function reflexively out of reflex doing the righteous things you want me to do. God's made our brain to be amazing. We've got two things to get through and we'll finish out and let you go. Viewpoint. The frame of reference from which your world is viewed. A reference point is a place that you are able to say, this is where I'm at with something. And so in the world, you say, I am here in this world, I see things this way. If you change your location on a map, you see different parts of the map. If you change your frame of reference, you'll see, different, you'll see the world differently. You may think that the world is half empty. You guys have heard of that, right? Is the glass half empty or is the glass, glass half full? Neither. The glass is entirely full. It's just full of different things. Oh. I said two things. That's a third, so we'll just skip that for now. So if you change the way you look at something, you're changing your frame of reference. Your mentality. This is your mental attitude. If you've ever been in a state of annoyance or anger and someone completely unrelated to why you're angry or annoyed says something to you and you just blow up at them, you operate out of a mentality. It's your mental attitude and it affects the way you perceive things. We'll start with viewpoint. Oh, we'll start with the heart next week probably, or in two weeks. And we'll finish out a little bit more of understanding the mind and then we'll go to the renovation process. You've got a good framework for it already. Let's pray and we'll go out from here.